begin today with a question, and it's this. So what's the greatest challenge you have ever faced? Now that question was put to Joe Stowell, who at the time was president of Moody Bible Institute. And so you might think if um, a, the president of a college is asked that question, he might respond this way. He might say, well, my greatest challenge is raising millions of dollars every year just to keep this institution afloat. Or he might say, my greatest challenge is recruiting a world-class faculty. Or maybe he would say, it's recruiting and training students. And yet he didn't say any of that. When he was asked what his greatest challenge was, he said, the greatest challenge I face is myself. Every day, he said, I look at myself in the mirror, and if he could handle the man on the inside, he could handle any challenge that comes from the outside. And yet, honestly, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it, to handle the man or the woman on the inside? And so today, we're going to look at this very important topic of self-control. Now, there's a, a proverb, I think, that really helps us to see how important this, this issue is. It's on the top of your bulletin. It's Proverbs chapter 25 and t- verse 28. And the Proverbs writer uses a, a powerful image. He says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Think about that image. A city who, who doesn't have any walls, the walls are broken down, the walls are broken through, as a result of that... That city is very vulnerable to attacks from the outside. And so is our lives. When we lack self-control, we're vulnerable not only to attacks from the outside, from Satan, but we're also, we're also vulnerable to attacks from the inside. And so think for a moment about where you might be vulnerable. Some struggle with anger. And so this past Friday night, I was at a football game. And, you know, you see some anger at football games, don't you? And sometimes you can get caught up in the crowd. And so I was in the crowd, and and the referee didn't make a call exactly like I thought he should make. And it's amazing. I found myself standing up shouting, that's horrible, that's horrible, that's horrible. Then I looked out of the corner of my eye, and there sat one of my elders. A couple church members right behind And yet a lot of times we struggle with our anger, don't we? We find ourselves yelling at our kids. We find ourselves yelling at our wives. We find ourselves yelling at the TV. We find ourselves yelling at our husbands in front of the TV. I mean, you know, we're filled with anger. And so that's something that some of you struggle with in this room. Others of you may be struggling with pornography. With today's technology, it's too easy and too available And although you know it doesn't bring glory to God, it seems you can't seem to stop. You might even rationalize in your mind, well, nobody's getting hurt. And it's really not like I'm being unfaithful. So you struggle. I might be speaking to some people in this room right now who are on the verge of an affair. And you can't stop thinking about that other person or maybe even spending time with that other person. You might even rationalize in your mind, I deserve her or him. Or maybe God wants me to be happy. And you've crossed boundary after boundary, and you're 
maybe already involved in an emotional affair and you're on the verge of getting involved in a full-blown affair and, and yet there's something in you, you, you have a hard time saying no. Still others chronically overeat. Now I realize I'm, I'm about to go from, from preaching to meddling here, but, but food is something that you can't seem to say no to. Others of you, your struggle is not any of that. Your struggle might be spending money. You're deep in debt, and yet every time you walk into a a store, you you, you realize you can't afford it, you don't really need it, and you pull out your Visa or your MasterCard, and you charge, and you're racking up all sorts of debt, but you just can't seem to stop. You're struggling with self-control. And so you might answer, ask, how do I gain a measure of control? And so some say, well, we, we learn to say no through fear. Fear of consequences or maybe fear of getting caught. I could tell you this morning, story after story of, of men and women who got caught up in sin. And maybe just by sharing those stories of, of pain and shame and, and all of that, it's powerful enough to teach you to say no. It seems almost every week we hear some key leader who's fallen into some sort of, of sin. And yet I'm convinced that, that fear alone doesn't have the power to help us to say no. In fact, sometimes the fear of getting caught is part of sin's allure and power. Or maybe someone says it's, it's willpower. We just need more willpower. In fact, doesn't the very phrase self-control suggest a measure of, of willpower? And so you get caught up in a sin and, and you think, I, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And you berate yourself and you say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm just going to have some more willpower. But how many times have you gotten on the more willpower program and you keep making the same mistake, falling into the same sin? Sheer willpower is not enough. Still others say what we need is a good dose of the law of God. Perhaps this will teach us to say no. You see, what we need are more laws, more rules, more boundaries. And quite honestly, Christian people are really good at making laws. A lot of times, making rules and boundaries where there might not even be a law. And certainly, healthy boundaries are good. I think I've told you before about having a conversation with a minister friend of mine, a more seasoned, older minister. And he began to share with me how he set certain boundaries in place and And I really learned from him that served me well in my ministry. Boundaries are good. We might even expect there to be a verse in the Bible that reads something like this. The law of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and helps us to live upright and godly lives. And yet you're not going to find that verse. You say, what we need are more laws from God. And yet... As important as the law of God is, it does not have the power to change even one human heart. It doesn't have the power in and of itself to teach us to say no to ungodliness. And so I guess I'm, I'm raising the question, so what does teach us to say no? That's really what I want to figure out this morning in our sermon. If it's not fear, if it's not sheer willpower, if it's not more boundary or law, what, what's the answer? Well, Paul... He gives us the answer. Now, Paul is writing to Titus, and Titus is working with the church in Crete. And understand, this wasn't an easy place to work. In fact, in Titus 
chapter 2 in our scripture reading, Paul quotes Epimenides, one of their uh, prophets, one of their, their philosophers. Epimenides lived in the 6th century B.C., and as he looked at his own people, Epimenides said this about them. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and we wonder, how do you really feel, Epimenides? So from Paul's letter and from their own philosophers, we get this picture of what life was like on Crete. We know Cretans are lazy, gluttonous, rebellious, argumentative. In other words, they're more like us than we care to admit. And so Paul gives Titus some very specific instructions in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And he, he tells these older women, here's, here's what I want you to teach the younger women. And he tells the older men, here's some things that I, I want you to know and, and learn. He tells the younger men, here's some things I want you to consider but if you listen carefully just a few moments ago, as Cliff read from the Scripture, three times in the space of eight verses, Paul talks about self-control. This is very important. Well, that's great, but, but I still want to know, how do, we, how do we learn to be more self-controlled? In, the very, in this very permissive culture, a culture that's loosening its moral boundaries... How do we learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts? I mean, we're, we're a part of a, a, a culture that's becoming more and more, it seems, permissive. I'll never forget, I may have told you this story before, but when I was a young kid, my sister and I had the opportunity to spend a week with my grandparents. We were living in Illinois. They were living in Tennessee. We didn't spend a lot of time with them, so it was unusual that we would spend one week with my grandparents. And they were trying to you know, we were just little kids, and they were trying to show us a good time. And, and so one of the things my grandfather said was, let's go to the movies. Now, they hadn't been to the movies in years. And I remember my grandfather saying, you know what, I'm in the, I'm in the mood for a good Western. You know, I really like that John Wayne. I'd love to see a good Western. And so we piled in the car, and we headed to the drive-in. And my little sister and I, we're sitting in the back. Oh, this is exciting to us. We're, we're going to the movies with my grandparents. And I'll never forget, as we were there at the, at the drive-in, how the opening credits came on. We were getting ready to see this Western, Blazing Saddles. Well, can I just tell you, from that opening credit on, it, it kind of went south. I mean, I remember my, my grandfather saying, oh, this is looking good, honey. We're going to see an old Western. Oh, this is great. Can't wait to show our grandkids this great movie, Blazing Sun. It's just a part of, of this culture that we're in. It's a very permissive culture in every sort of way. So how do we learn to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts? Well, the verse I didn't read for you, Paul gives us the answer. Titus 2, verses 11 through 12, notice... Notice what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. What is it that has the power to teach us to say no? What is it that trains us to live self-controlled lives in this present age paul says it's grace only grace grace has that much power and notice he says this grace has appeared well what's he talking about here grace is a concept this unmerited lavish favor 
He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus has appeared. He's, he's personifying grace to say, in Jesus we see grace. And that's what John would tell us in his gospel when he would say that Jesus is full of grace and truth. John would say in John chapter 1, verse 16, that out of his fullness we've all received grace in place of grace already given. I love Eugene Peterson, how he paraphrases this verse. He writes in the message, we all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. That's what we have in Jesus. It's one gift after another gift after another gift. We're forgiven and and we receive the Holy Spirit and we're given life and purpose and meaning and eternal life in the end. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. Jesus offers gift after gift. But the question I'm raising, and I want to spend the last five, ten minutes here, how does this grace teach us? And that's really what I've been thinking about all week. Paul is convinced that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. How does it do that? I would suggest, first of all, that it it teaches us in that it always offers us another chance. Now, if there's no grace, as soon as we sinned, we would be condemned. But grace, it it comes to us again and again. Sometimes we're tempted to think that that after we sin, especially if it's something we've done before, that God becomes a little more disappointed with us every time. Until finally he just gives up on us altogether. It's like God finally says, okay, that's it. That's the final straw. I'm not going to extend any more grace to you. But see, the truth of the matter is, while God will never give up on us, sometimes we give up on God and sometimes we give up on ourselves. I love the story in Luke 15. It's the gospel in microcosm, the parable of the lost son. The lost son has gone into the far country. He finally comes to his senses. He decides to come home. And as he's walking home, he's rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say to the father. And so he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's what he's going to say. He's saying in his mind. And he finally gets to the father. And the father sees him. The father runs to meet him. And the son begins his spiel. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And before he finishes, it's a fascinating little detail in the story. Before he finishes, it's almost like the father interrupts him. He says, hey, quick, quick, bring, bring the ring. Uh, bring a jacket. Uh, bring the sandals. Let's, let's kill the fatted calf. My, my son who is lost is now found. My, my son who is dead is now alive. Let's celebrate. What did that, what did that son receive? He, he came limping home thinking, I'm just going to be a hired servant. I can never be considered a son again because of all that I've done. And that father says, oh no, we're, we're going to celebrate. He experienced lavish grace. Grace teaches us to say no because we have another opportunity. But grace teaches us to say no because it helps us to become more, more, grace, more grateful. Grace works in our heart to help us to become We're grateful. I believe grace is the greatest motivator. See, if we go through life trying to earn something from God, it'll wear us out. And if somehow we're able to live up to whatever standard we've set in our minds that this is what God wants for me, if we're able to live up to that standard, then what we have the tendency to do is look down on everybody else in pride. 
Or on the other hand, if we're not able to live up to the standard, what we do is we, we're crushed and so burdened by that that we just, we just give up altogether. But when we take the focus off of ourselves and we look to the cross, and we understand it's only through the cross that all my sins are taken care of. It's only through the cross that I can be united with God. When we do that, then suddenly we're not filled with pride and we're not crushed. Oh no, we, we have this grateful heart. And out of that grateful heart, we want to we live for God and we want to serve Him. We look at Paul and wonder, what, what motivated Paul? the great apostle Paul, this one who killed Christians, what motivated him to do all the things that he did? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Three times he says it was the grace of of God. I'm so grateful. And that was the energy that motivated Paul to say no and to live this great life that God has for him. One final thing, grace teaches us because it brings us into a personal relationship with the living Savior. We said a moment ago that when Paul talks about this grace appearing, and the, the word there is the word epiphany, this grace that's made, that just appeared he says that's, that's really, we understand that's really Jesus. And so it's because of our relationship with Jesus that we have the ability to say no. It comes by having more of Jesus in our lives. In your struggle with sin, stop depending on what you can do and start depending on only what Jesus can do. Draw closer to Jesus this week. Meditate on his word. Nurture that relationship. Stay connected to the vine, and as you do, it's the life of Jesus that courses through you and gives you the, the power to say no and to live the kind of life he wishes for you to live. Randy Frazee once told about a conversation he had with the late George Gallup Jr. You've probably heard the name George Gallup Jr. He was in, involved in all the, the polling and, and Gallup was a, a huge influence on Frazee's life. In fact, Gallup uh, helped Frazee as he was putting together this series that we've been going uh, over the last few weeks, this Believe series. And one day, they were talking about this concept of self-control. And Frazee said very proudly, Christians just need to get their act together and, and be self-controlled. And Mr. Gallup said in a very gentle voice, Randy, you're not an alcoholic, are you? And he said, well, no, no, I'm not. And Gallup said, well, you see, I am. And my dad was before me. And, and as a result of that, when I took my first drink, I, I realized I was, I was hooked, and I knew I couldn't stop. And he said, likely you've not experienced that. And he said, even as I became a follower of Jesus, I tried, and I tried, and I tried. But I felt defeated. And alcohol was ruining my life. And then in a moment of quiet desperation, he said, it was almost like Jesus was speaking to me in a whisper. And he said, George, if you never lick this, that's okay. 
I died for this struggle in your life. And I love you deeply. And Gallup said, I don't know what happened, but from that very moment until now, 30 years ago, I haven't taken a drink. Jesus doesn't love us because we're perfect. But understand, the perfect love of Jesus expressed in his lavish grace to us, when we understand it, it'll help us be much better than we are. When we know and experience the love and grace of Jesus, it's, it's only then that we can gain the victory. And so today I'm wondering if you've experienced that victory. I'm wondering this morning if you've been trying to say no by your willpower. I'm wondering this morning if you've been trying to say, to say no by some sort of fear. I'm, I'm wondering if you've been trying to say no, you're looking for a law or a rule, and yet you've never turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, I, I, I know you love me, and you've experienced that love and that grace, and as a result, your, your life is different. 